from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, with more than 100 degree programs offered in four locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. West Virginia University, a land-grant, space-grant, R1 research institution. Learn more at wvu.edu. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com. Good evening from Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. On the legislature today, an issue with overwhelming bipartisan support, broadband expansion. But what will that entail? So as we lower the cost, as we speed the deployment, um, and as we prove and have the information to know exactly where broadband isn't in the state of West Virginia, that's how we can solve the problem. We'll get the details on House Bill 2002 later in the program. Also an update on education bills and a divisive bill on harm reduction. But first joining me now, senior reporter Dave Mistich and Report for America Corps member Emily Allen. Thank you both for joining me. Dave, let's start uh, with the proposed personal income tax repeal of the governor. After several virtual town meetings over the last couple weeks, he presented the bill to the legislature uh, yesterday. His proposal calls for a um, reduction in tax rates by 60 percent. Uh, for all filers. Right. Uh, take us through the proposal. Right, like as you said, that's 60% uh, on all filers on wages and salaries, pensions, annuities, IRAs, Social Security, and unemployment benefits as well. And those cuts to the personal income tax of those of those categories translate to about $1.04 billion in, in revenue. Of course, under Justice's plan, there would have to be tax increases on other things. Uh, I don't think anyone would imagine that you could, you know, whack the budget by $1 billion and not make up for it some other way. Under Justice's plan, you know, the consumer sales tax would increase. It would go from 6% to 7.9%, which would put West Virginia as the highest consumer sales tax in the nation out of, out of all states, all 50 states. There would also be an increase to the soda tax, beer, liquor, and wine, cigarette and tobacco. There would be this tiered system on oil, gas, and coal taxes. Uh, and it would also create this this luxury items tax, which is something new that doesn't exist in state code. I should say that, you know, of all that, that would bring us back about $900 million. Uh, so, you know, of that $1 billion, that's 900, $902 uh, million that would be made up for those. So. And so what about the shortfall there? Sure, yeah, of course, you know, um, with, with the way things are working, it would leave about $185 million uh, of a shortfall. But the governor has proposed these uh, quote-unquote options to consider. It's something that we saw at the very end of this abstract that he put in uh, whenever he announced the, the, the legislation yesterday. This is before we even saw a bill. Um, that includes $25 million in cuts to state agencies and programs that the Senate would possibly propose. Uh, $10 million in payroll from general revenue from attrition. So if people would leave uh, being state employees, we would just not backfill those positions and to the tune of about $10 million. And they're also projecting about $60 million in annual projected growth. 
So uh, even if all those options were employed in this plan, it would still leave about $90 million of uh, unaccounted for in the shortfall. So a lot of questions about how, how things are gonna move around and make this work. And, and of course, it's given now to the to the finance committees, and and as you say, they they run with the ball now. That's right, right. And and of course, um, you know, they, the bill is yet to make its way to committee. That'll probably happen sometime next week or the week after. Um, but of course, one of the things that I think anyone would say about this is this is just the governor's plan, and the legislature will do with it what they will. So I don't think that this exact framework that we're looking at now is what we're going to wind up with. Thanks, Dave. Emily, this week we saw the first virtual public hearing of the session. Uh, the bill would weaken some of the state's water quality standards and strengthen others. You've done reporting on this. Tell us about that. Yeah, so on Monday we had the first public hearing of the year. It was on a piece of a rules bundle that House Judiciary eventually passed on to the full House, um, basically updating standards for air quality and water quality. But this one piece of this rule obviously is the subject of this public hearing. It adopts 24 of 94 recommendations from the United States Environmental Protection Agency for human health rules. So uh, these 24 deal with water quality. Environmental advocates who oppose this new rule say that about half of those new rules would weaken existing West Virginia water uh, standards by um, allowing for more carcinogens or cancer-causing uh, substances in our water. During the public hearing, we had uh, one person who spoke in support of this piece of this rules bundle from the West Virginia Coal Association, but of the roughly 30 people who participated, most were opposed. Um, we are about to hear right now from one of the speakers, Jean Evansmore from Fayette County. Uh, here she is now. I turned 80 last year and it surprises most people because I don't look like the stereotypical 80-year-old West Virginia female. Well, I lived most of my life elsewhere. I came back home in 94. I am totally aghast that anything to make water worse is being proposed. Water is a basic. Without water, we don't have life. So uh, that was the public hearing. Uh, later in the week, the House Judiciary Committee considered this rules bundle um, and they, they passed it all as is. It's now in the full House. I should say that if this bundle passes and it becomes law, those um, rules that were debated during that public hearing um, are subject to uh, the U.S. EPA for final approval. All right. Thanks, Emily. And Dave, Senate Bill 332 passed yesterday out of the Senate. This provides a procedure for West Virginia to select delegates to an Article 5 convention. It's a very significant bill. That's right. So Article 5 convention um, would is basically um, when states, um, when two-thirds of states pass a resolution calling on Congress to amend the state constitution. We've heard these... The U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution, absolutely. And we've heard this year after year after year. I should note, uh, I looked up uh, some, some data from the National Conference of State Legislatures, um, and between 2011 and 2017, uh, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of these resolutions have been introduced in state legislatures all around the country. And the stated purpose of the particular of this particular convention of states is a uh, is on congressional term limits uh, is one thing that we've been discussing here. But the Senate Bill 332 uh, would keep a conventions of convention of states limited to the idea that each state would have one vote. So West Virginia. Uh, would be equal as any other state whenever a convention of states might take place. Um, delegates would have to take an oath. Um, as part of this, this bill, though, there was some, there was some uh, discussion on whether or not um, 
a convention of states could become a runaway convention and the delegates that show up at this convention could essentially shred the Constitution. We'll hear now from uh, Senate Judiciary Chair Charles Trump of Morgan County speaking to the bill and some rebuttal from Senate Senator Mike Romano of Harrison County. And the question is always what uh, opponents of the resolutions uh, generally argue that there are not protections to prevent an Article V convention of the states or the delegates to it from running away from the limited purpose of the call and creating a runaway convention that could make changes to or recommend changes to the U.S. Constitution that were not contemplated when the state passed the resolution. This bill seeks to address that argument and concern and fear. We're playing with fire here. I've told you many times for those first year folks in here, I can tell you that you're risking the entire democracy of our country because if they start an Article V convention and this bill has no effect like a lot of legal scholars say it will not, then we've opened our entire country to change that we may never be able to recover from. And Susanna, of course, over on the House side is House Concurrent Resolution 9. Uh, had a public hearing today, and that resolution urges Congress to call this Convention of States to impose term limits on the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, so far, 15 states have passed that same, uh, a similar resolution, um, and so we'll see how this goes. But that, that Senate Bill 332 and this House Concurrent Resolution 9 are sort of one and the same, or they deal with the same issue of this Article 5 Convention. 15 states have passed, and they need a, a threshold of 34. That's right, two-thirds. Right. Thank you so much, Dave Mistich and Emily Allen. Thank you. Next, a Senate bill would establish new licensing requirements for harm reduction programs operating syringe exchanges. Its sponsor wants to address the problem of discarded needles, but opponents say it is so stringent it will likely prohibit or shut down most needle exchange programs in the state. June Leffler reports. Senate Bill 334 would place guidelines on any program handing out sterile syringes to IV drug users. Republican Senator Eric Tarr of Putnam County introduced the legislation. He says some programs are amazing, helping to curb the spread of HIV and other bloodborne illnesses. But he believes others are creating a nuisance to the general public. Needle litter. And my father has a child in Huntington who, when they go out walking down a sidewalk, go visit the park, I have to worry about them getting stuck with a needle, a dirty needle that comes off these needle exchanges. It's extremely rare that anyone gets stuck by a dirty needle, according to Dr. Michael Kelkenny of the Cabell Huntington Health Department, who understands the fear some might have. Still, he says needle exchanges do more good than harm. There are people actually getting this disease from sharing needles. Those are the people we need to address. The CDC recommends any community dealing with an HIV outbreak should implement a syringe program to keep folks from sharing used needles. The federal agency and other researchers have figured out what works best. And Dr. Kilkenny says Senate Bill 334 disregards many of those best practices. The bill tells programs to give users a limited amount of needles. One-to-one -one says if you don't bring me any, you don't get any. It doesn't mean you don't need them. The bill's proponents believe keeping a closer count of needles coming in and out would cut down on needle litter. Opponents say it would deter those in need from using the service. The bill had its first reading on the Senate floor today. For the legislature today, I'm June Leffler. 
Broadband expansion is the goal of House Bill 2002, now in the Senate. Emily Allen spoke yesterday with Delegate Daniel Linville and Senator Robert Plymel, both longtime champions of the issue. Thank you so much to the both of you for being here. Um, obviously, I'm going to start with House Bill 2002, which just passed the House of Delegates yesterday. Um, you obviously know it does a lot of things. It elaborates on consumer protection uh, for broadband users. It seeks to kind of streamline the process for deploying uh, broadband facilities. It goes into the Office of Broadband and some of the data collection work that they're doing. And it has new rules for companies who benefit from public funding um, for broadband expansion in the state. Um, uh, and not to explain your own bill to you, but yesterday during the vote on uh, the House of Delegates, something that came up was you know, whether this legislation will truly help rural communities in some of our most unserved areas in the state. Um, just to start off with, Delegate Linval, it's your bill. Um, how do you respond to that? And what should people living in rural West Virginia know about this legislation? Well, they should know that, that we're concentrated on rural West Virginia because I'm a rural West Virginian. And I'll tell you uh, first and foremost that one of the biggest challenges that we've had is being able to prove and demonstrate where uh, broadband, in fact, is not available in the state of West Virginia. And this bill uh, certainly contemplates that uh, first and foremost by codifying that we will uh, put out the state broadband availability map every year. And I know that that uh, may not seem like the biggest thing, but that's how we help to correct the FCC's maps. And with billions and billions of dollars at stake. Um, this allows West Virginia to make the case um, as to where we need to do this. And so that's big for the FCC side of things, but it also allows us to tailor our financial support um, to those communities that we can now prove don't have broadband access. Um, and so as we lower the cost, as we speed the deployment, um, and as we prove and have the information to know exactly where broadband isn't in the state of West Virginia, that's how we can solve the problem. That sounds like a tremendous effort. <laughs> Senator Plymel, um, I, I do want to ask you, you've talked a little about, you know, before about um, accessibility and affordability, especially for broadband in rural West Virginia and elsewhere. I think something that's significant about this bill that, you know, I've heard about in the legislature, but also outside of the legislature, um, you know, the, the Office of Broadband Director talks about this a bit, is a need for more regional specific approaches to how we um, deploy more broadband. Um, you're part of a Thundercloud Incorporated, I, I believe, in the Huntington area that just received more than $2 million from the Appalachian Regional Commission. Can you talk about that effort some and what other communities um, should know about how it's going in, in that approach? Well, actually, uh, what Doug Linville is talking about really targets on the mapping side of it. And the mapping side of it has been an effort that he has done a great job of. In our area, what we are proving is everybody is really underserved. Uh, when you look at the speed tests that we did in Thundercloud, we proved that a lot of the speeds that were being uh, actually offered and guaranteed by companies they weren't meeting this, the, the speed test up or down. And what this effort does is really do 100 over 100 in terms of the speeds for a region that can really use this from a, a business perspective. But what COVID-19 has done, COVID-19 has shown that everybody needs additional speed. When you have three children working from home on homework, and you start trying to do downloads for their homework, you're gonna run into problems. The Thundercloud project really looks at the businesses 
and the anchor institutions. We took the anchor institution model of the health school, you know, schools, health, and libraries, and and took that to the point where if we can serve those, we can also get out and serve the rest of the community. I do, you know, it's such a big part of this bill um, is making it easier for telecommunications carriers, which is defined in the legislation, of course, to. Um, you install some of their facilities for offering broadband. It streamlines a lot of the regulated process and it builds a lot on legislation that this body has passed in previous years. Um, I, I don't know if like a Spark Notes version is possible, but Delegate Linville, I, I think what would really help people to understand is who in terms of carriers does this help and how does that play into that regional approach? Well, it helps absolutely everyone if you're going to be deploying broadband. And so it helps efforts uh, like what Senator Plymouth was just uh, describing with ThunderCloud. Um, it helps co-ops. It helps um, any of the any of the big players, but it can help just groups of West Virginians uh, who wish to, to take matters into their own hands and to solve this problem collaboratively. And so uh, what's, what's great about that is that it really um, begins to spur competition. And so what Senator Plymouth was beginning to discuss there is um, that we've, we've taken an approach that, that we want as much competition as is possible. And in testimony regarding uh, the Thundercloud effort um, uh, back in October, there was a lot of discussion that when competition moved into an area, speeds naturally increased because of the, of, of the behavior of the industry, because now they've got to compete for their, for their customers. And in addition to that, costs uh, went down into less than half. And so what we find is that that free market approach to broadband um, has opened these things up. And I feel like the bill um, uh, goes directly into that um, and works to spur innovation um, and, and certainly get more fiber in more places so that more West Virginians can be connected. And ultimately, um, if we reduce the cost, it takes less money to build. Something else that uh, people uh, are probably wondering is how fast is this going to apply to me? How fast is this going to help me no matter where they live in the state? You've talked about this um, legislation as sort of a step forward, but not a, a magic solution. Can you talk about what should come next and what this leads to? And I mean, maybe even when people can expect to see some immediate results like that. Well, absolutely. And so, um, uh, when I talk about this, I discuss, you know, what we can do in three weeks, what we can do in three months, and what we can do in three years. And so uh, this legislation sets the stage for our funding efforts that will be coming up uh, uh, during this legislative session. And so first things first, uh, in three months, um, we can easily have 10,000 new West Virginia households with broadband that didn't have it before. And I laid out my plan to be able to do that um, in, in, uh, in providing financial support on a per-premises basis to our existing providers. Um, but the long term goal, which would be the three-year goal, um, is utilizing open access middle mile broadband, and think of this like your highways, um, for anyone to be able to, to deliver internet off of. And so that is a multi-year effort, um, and uh, we've made the commitment uh, in the legislature, and the governor has joined us as well, in saying that uh, we'll commit at least $50 million a year over the next three years for that effort, and that's in addition to what the FCC and others are doing uh, with billions and billions of dollars. Um, and so Senator Plymouth has taken um, a, a great approach in trying to find all of the different institutions um, who both receive federal support and also anchor our communities um, in bringing them together, addressing their needs, and in so doing that, being able to address the needs of the public at large. Senator Plymouth, would you want to respond a little bit further to uh, what your approach there has been and what you know reaching out to those institutions has been like? Well, let me first address the open access side of it and making sure that everybody is open access for competition. 
that's what the middle mile perspective is on this. And that is a key element of what we're talking about because we're not going to be able to serve the, the last, you know, 10 houses on a ridge under the conventional uh, uh, model from international companies and, and different things like that who have to monetize this over three years. This way, we will do it with the public money. And then if you're going to use public money, the public should have input into this. The open access side of this and the anchor institutions is look in telemedicine right now. Telemedicine is a big key on what we're trying to look at. How do we get in rural areas access to care then when care is needed? This is a really good model for doing that through the anchor institutions. I think this is the last thing that we'll have time for, and it, it's uh, especially directed at D D Delegate Linville. Um, but something in this bill, obviously, is you know some of these accountability rules for companies that accept public funding for broadband expansion in the state. Um, most recently, and I think this is supposed to happen next week, your committee has invited, or rather called upon, uh, members of Frontier Communications to testify and provide information on broadband and bankruptcy agreements with the state. Can you talk a little bit about what people should expect next week and, and why this is an important step, uh, you know, especially as we have all these federal and state uh, dollar programs? Absolutely. Well, uh, you can you can expect the House Committee on Technology and Infrastructure to get to the bottom of some of the failures of the past, while also uh, getting firm commitments, I would hope, uh, from Frontier Communications um, regarding what their plans are for the future. And we would ask that they testify under oath. And currently, it is a uh, it, it is a request, uh, but the committee has required. Uh, uh, me as the chairman uh, to subpoena them uh, if they fail to honor our requests. And so there's been a tremendous amount of public money that has been granted to numerous different providers, but most notably and in, 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 in the greatest portion to Frontier Communications. And what we would propose to do is to hold them accountable to understand any of the failures of the prior programs so that as we craft our own programs uh, that we do things in a, in a smart way and that, that make sure that the public dollars are stretched as far as possible to connect West Virginians. And so so uh, I think that you're going to see us hold, uh, hold Frontier accountable and hopefully come out of that meeting with something that, uh, that will benefit all West Virginians, uh, both from a knowledge base for what we would intend to do in legislation, but also maybe to see additional commitments from Frontier Communications uh, moving forward. And um, just really fast, is this something that you think uh, people will see more of since this is included in this legislation, um, you know, in further years in legislative sessions? Absolutely. I think, um, I think that uh, if you're going to accept public dollars to, to extend broadband access, you need to make sure that you get it done. And if you haven't, uh, we're going to be asking why. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I really appreciate it. Um, Delegate Daniel Linville and Senator Rob Heimel, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Major education bills saw significant action this week, including a voucher program that would shift more than $100 million of public education funding to private or home schools. Liz McCormick has this update and more. House Bill 2013 would establish the HOPE Scholarship Program, providing publicly funded educational savings accounts to public school students who are looking to switch to private or homeschool. Those students would receive a voucher valued at the current school aid formula level of $4,600. The bill also says by 2026, any private or homeschool student could apply for that voucher whether the child ever attended public school. The West Virginia Department of Education estimates the bill could have a fiscal impact of $126 million a year after full implementation in 2026. 
It passed the House of Delegates yesterday and is now in the Senate. Senate Bill 11 declares that a work stoppage or strike by public employees is unlawful. Many lawmakers have said it's a reaction to recent teacher strikes. Here's some floor debate from the House this week. So let's just call this what it is, a threat. It's a threat. That's what this bill is to the teachers and the public employees. It just says they will not get paid. It still states that it's a condition that they could be fired. But it also says that we're not going to use those extra instructional days to make up time for a strike. That's all it does. It's not targeting one group or another. It's just all public employees have the same thing. Senate Bill 11 is now off to the governor for a signature. And House Bill 2012, it would allow for up to 10 brick and mortar public charter schools in the state by 2023. The bill also allows for two statewide virtual public charter schools, as well as one local virtual public charter per county. Here's some debate in the Senate on Monday. Why are we taking these risks when we've never had a charter school and now we're gonna have some? Why not put some reasonable limits on these virtual and brick and mortar charter schools. The point of providing choice is that you are empowering those families, whatever makeup they may be, to have a choice. House Bill 2012 has also completed its legislative action and is off to the governor for a signature. A reminder to listen to West Virginia Morning for daily legislative updates and go to our website for the latest news at wvpublic.org. We stream the floor sessions every day on the West Virginia channel and we'll be back next Friday night for a wrap up on the legislature today. I'm Suzanne Higgins for everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Thanks for joining us. Have a safe weekend.